Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Dressed listeners, are you ready to jump back into the royal wardrobe? This may not necessarily be an aristocratic one, but none the less fabulous, I will say, because today is part two of our episode with fashion historian Cassie Ritchie discussing her book on his royal badness, The Life and Legacy of Prince's Fashion. That's right, dress listeners. Earlier this week, Cassie joined us to talk about Prince's style and his early career. And today we explore further into some of his most iconic looks and some of the makers behind them. So if you haven't tuned into part one, you might consider doing so. In April, Cassie has written of Prince that he was, quote, the patron saint of the chronically overdressed and unbothered, which is honestly a wonderful description of his sartorial explorations. I love it. Prince's considerable sex appeal was often underscored by fearless choices in getting dressed both on and off the stage, and his maximalist style is and remains utterly unique, playful, androgynous, and without peer. So without further ado, we jump back into April and Cassie's conversation to learn more. Cassie, welcome back. A lot of these ensembles are custom. And that brings up the point that he had this entire team behind him who helped create his look. Would you tell us a little bit more about some of the most important makers of his signature style and also maybe a little bit about the Paisley Park wardrobe department? Because I did not know that this was an entire thing until I read your book. Yeah, it's, it's honestly incredible. And it's something that I'm really, really passionate about. I'm actually doing a PhD just now, and it is, it's about Prince and fashion and, and fans. And the reason why I do my Prince study is because I'm really passionate about telling the stories of the creatives that worked with Prince. You find it a lot in any person that's on stage. And I think with film studies and costume studies, it's beginning to get a bit better. But with music, like nobody really knows the people that are pattern cutting for Lady Gaga or the people, do you know what I mean? And I think somebody like Prince is such a fantastic case study because, like you say, he had a wardrobe department in his house. Yeah. Which is incredible. Um, Sign me up. One day. It could be the dream. (laughs) I know. It's absolutely wild. And it was like a really, really, really um, successful time. It it happened when Prince was incredibly, like, on the high. You know, he had a lot of money. He had a lot of resources to put into this. So it was it was happening at, you know, like his peak. And he opened Paisley Park, which is in um, just outside of um, Minneapolis and Minnesota. 
that was his home, but it was also like a, there was like umpteen recording spaces, there was a film studio, and then there, like I say, there was the wardrobe department, which was meant to be close to one of his beds, but I've never been upstairs in Paisley Park, so I'm not, you know, like I'm not 100% sure in that. But the wardrobe department ran from um, a period of 87 to like, I'm not 100% sure in the dates, because it's very hard to find information about it for definite, but I think it was like the mid-90s. And he had at one point up to 30, 30 odd people working in that day, like every day, day to day. Um, there's a couple of like images you can find online and there's a couple of clips on YouTube, um, particularly during the Love Sexy Tour, um, if, you, you have, if you're interested in finding more. And it, it reminds me of my studio space when I was an undergrad student. <laughs> there's huge part and cutting tables, there's industrial machines, there's dubbies everywhere, there's rolls and rolls and rolls of fabric. And it just looks like, like such an exciting, creative hubbub of really amazing people that are working there. Prince was incredibly passionate about working with people from Minneapolis, from, from his state. Um, so a lot of people were born and raised there. A lot of people that he worked with had a background in theatre and I think uh, the Guthrie Theatre in, in Minneapolis and I think that's why when we're talking about his tailoring these kind of tricks of the trade the way that Arushan's done the way that there's stirrups underneath boots and the way that certain things are buckled back so that they you know like blue on at certain points of a performance that comes from that that level of skill that you can't really learn um, anywhere else you, you can't learn that when you're just pattern cutting for fashion you know like it, it's that it's, it's the performer's garment it's the drama yes exactly um so yeah prince prince had this wardrobe department and there's so many incredible people that that worked with prince over the years and i've been fortunate enough to speak to some of them um i would love to speak to anyone and everyone who has worked within the the realm of um prince prince's creative um sphere a couple of people that, that really come to mind is are Sasha Lang. She had a background in theatre as well, um, based in New York, and she came to work for Prince in the early 90s. And she worked on some of the most kind of infamous Diamonds and Perils, Love Symbol, Looks, The Bum Bearing, Yellow Suit. Absolutely. We're going we're gonna to get into that here in a minute. We can't, we can't not. <laughs> yeah, but there, there, there's so many people. There's Helen Hyatt. She worked with Prince um, throughout the 80s. And there was a tailor called Jim Sheeran who was from Minneapolis and unfortunately he passed. And I would love to speak to anyone who knows him because I'm really, really, really interested in the tailoring aspect of, of um, Prince's clothes. But I mentioned before people like Bon Terry and uh, Louis Wells who didn't work in the Paisley wardrobe department and they were there before. But interestingly, when I was speaking to Von Terry, he worked, so Louis Wells has, has passed as well, unfortunately. But him and Louis Wells worked with Prince on the road. So during the 1999 tour, they basically had their own little wardrobe shop on the road. So in hotel spaces, they had machines and they were running up um, garments for The Time, the band The Time and Apollonia, sorry, Vanity Six, whilst they, they were performing. And I think, you know, like speaking... Like when you when you see it like that, I think Prince kind of caught onto that and was like, "Oh, actually, this would be really great if it was just right next to my bedroom." Yeah, because Prince was known to just you know like breeze in and be like, "Okay, we need umpteen outfits for the band," because he wasn't just dressing himself; he was literally dressing everyone that he knew. Like Prince just gifted everyone their own little bespoke wardrobe, 
what a thing to have like a, <laughs> yeah, incredible that's amazing i also know that he was also collaborating with some high end fashion houses around this time to do custom looks for him who was he working with so throughout his career prince worked with a couple a couple of kind of high end designers such as like balmain towards the end of his life he also worked with Versace, notably in the mid-90s. There's a music release that coincides with that. I've never, again, this is like part of my research, I've never found anything that he's been working directly with designers in terms of they're making a bespoke outfit for him. I know it, I know it will exist somewhere, but he was known to, you know, like request racks from Chanel and Jean-Paul Gaultier and these designers there's a really great interview uh, in Vogue in 1992 and he's got his rack at Paisley and he's going through it and he's like oh Jean-Paul Gaultier everyone wears that Madonna wears that no we won't be wearing that (laughs) um you know like he was quite he was quite he's quite catty but yeah like I think Prince was he did wear designer garments Versace in particular um but a lot of a lot of the stuff that he wore he was wearing if it was Versace was like you know like off the rack but built built for him but he did I think his main focus was working with his designer you know like and 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 creating something but Prince was really inspired by fashion houses he was known to have um you know like piles and piles of you know like tearaways from from Vogue and Harper's Bazaar etc and he would circle it out and be like well we love that shoulder detail and I love that color and then go into the the wardrobe department and be like okay see what you can do for me so yeah, that like he was definitely really inspired by by um couture and things like that. And you can see that in particular looks as well. I'm doing stuff just now on um, the Love Symbol album and the Versace um is it is the collection Little Miss S and M. You know the one I'm talking about yeah. in nineteen ninety three with all the Prince really, <laughs> really took that and run with it um during that period as well. So he's obviously doing a little bit of cherry picking yeah well he was hella fashion savvy let's just say that <laughs> okay so we have to go back to this iconic look from the vmas that we touched on earlier um 1991 the vma awards if you have seen this dress listeners it's emblazoned in your mind because you can't ever unsee it <laughs> cassie would you tell us a little bit about this look and this role why it ended up becoming so iconic and as you write in the book in establishing him as the quote eternal sexual deviant of popular music yes it's so um, good <laughs> I actually went back and re-watched it I had seen it before multiple times but like when I started working on this like no I need to see this again it's such an incredible performance and you know like today when we think of you know like shock and MTV like in particular you know like the video music awards there's usually some form of tomfoolery going on and then you look back at get off and it's it's still it still hits it's still it still really gets you but yeah so if you haven't seen it prince performed at the vmas in 1991 in a yellow uh, lace bolero jacket and matching yellow trousers so the song get off is all about um it's all about sexual liberation for a woman and that, you know, like she's stifled at the moment. She's not, she's not getting it from um, whoever she's with at the time. And 
prince comes along and you know like takes care of her problem <laughs> yes he's expressing he, he's he's telling her to express herself and and in all the ways that she can and this performance is just incredible because at the time as i kind of mentioned before this was a period of prince's life where he had a couple of when you say failures it was about there was things like graffiti bridge that was a commercial um, failure and, you know, like there was this real popularity of things like hip hop and rap. And Prince was was kind of left in the 80s. Um, and the album Diamonds and Pearls, Prince wanted to basically create a hit. And he wanted to basically signal to everyone that, you know, like I'm still here and I'm doing it better than anyone else can. So this performance, Prince designed this garment in, in terms of he told Stacia Lang, so his designer at um, the wardrobe department at Paisley, it had to be lace, it had to be yellow, and it had to show his bum. So, like, he was, he stipulated those three things, and the outfit itself was a last-minute request, and the wardrobe team were working on it kind of right up to the day of the performance. And during the performance, Prince at the time was really inspired by the Tinto Brass film Caligula, which is just a smut fest. Yes. It's fabulous. Yes. Everyone should watch it. Beware, but everyone should watch it. <laughs> Beware, yes. It's high camp though as well. Yeah. And at the time he kind of coined this phrase gangsta glam, which was the style that he was repping at the time, which was inspired by films like Caligula, as well as The Godfather 3, I believe, and um, Barbarella. So he walks out on stage and there's this kind of staged orgy and he walks out on stage and basically stimulates um, group sex with his backing dancers, the Game Boys, mm-hmm. who are dressed in, in a very kind of fashionable, you know, like New Jack swing garments. So they're, they're, they're you know, like quite masculine, quite, quite um, you know, like conventional in their performance, very stylish and, and, and you know, like colourful, but very machismo in their presentation and Prince walks in with this wonderful like little Richard Lucille Ball up to poodle do and he turns around and his bum is out again it's not fully out it's got the um, mesh on the back but all throughout the performance like it is it's, it's to me like I love burlesque so when I look at a lot of Prince's stuff I just see a lot of connections between the way that burlesque dancers rile up the crowd and you know like get people um, engaged it's all about the tease it's all about the tease and prince uses this this outfit perfectly in this in this performance because he's he's really going for it and he's spinning round and flexing his bum muscles and all, all all this fabulous stuff but at the time he got completely panned for it you know like there was a lot of like homophobic um comments at the time um, there was a lot of people that took the mickey um, of, of the way that he was dressed. And for Prince to go on stage and to wear this, this garment that, you know, like is an incredibly provocative garment. It wasn't unlike anything, you, you know, like a lot of kind of hair metalers wore stuff, you know, like similar chaps and things like that. But it was it was a suit. It looked like a suit. And the way that he wore it, you know, like with his beautifully curled hair and the, the wonderful eyeliner and the heels. It was just such a distinctive look that, that was that was just so different to anything else. And like I say, against the kind of background of of um of rap and hip hop artists of baggy clothes and you know like this really kind of um, heteronormative 
masculine presentation style. Prince just came on and just rewrote it all and was just like... Yeah, and one fell swoop. You know? <laughs> yeah. I remember seeing that performance when I was a little girl and I remember putting my hands up to the TV screen and feel, you know, like when you used to feel the fuzz on TVs? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Because I was like, oh my God, it's like, who is that? So yeah, everybody go and watch the performance. It'll cheer you up. Yeah, it's amazing. And I, I would argue also too, like the way that the reveal of his bum is constructed because there is this layer of like mesh or some sort of like flexible fabric there that actually almost even heightens the eroticism as compared to if it would have just been completely revealed because you can see it. You can see his muscles like flexing under that sheer panel and it actually makes it sexier. I don't know. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I I think it's power mesh. And it had to be, they had to guess hand dye it to Prince's skin shade because he wasn't there at the time when they were creating it. And I, I definitely agree that that kind of heightened anticipation of, you know, is he, is he actually, is he naked or actually no, like you can see it. It's the idea, you know, like that kind of gossamer fabric that's just, um, it's just beautiful. And the way as well that the jacket's cut, um, the jacket is, is lace, so it's all cut out. And every time he moves up, you just see this slice of just underneath his nipples. So there's this really like, you know, like erotic slice of, of flesh that every time he jumps up and down, you just, it's just, it's just a really beautifully tailored garment. Yeah. I think everybody's going to need to go back and rewatch some Prince yeah. performances to reappreciate exactly what he was doing. It's very well thought out. I didn't see it as that, like when I was a kid but I do now, going back and looking at it. I'd like to talk about another one of Prince's very specific looks. It's the chain hat that he started wearing in the mid-90s. And apparently he was wearing this in this context, um, broader context of artistic freedom. And he was going through a lot of disputes with his record label, at the time. And it ended up, this dispute ended up in him changing his name to this now well-known unpronounceable symbol. So for any of our listeners that might be unfamiliar with the rationale behind this move of him changing his name to this symbol, would you tell us a little bit about why he did this and any symbolism that you feel might be behind the chain hat that he wore to perform on stage because I had never made these connections, but they were so apparent once I read what you had to say about this. Yeah, the chain hat is something that he started wearing in 1991. And that was um, with the the Diamonds and Pearls era. Um, And he wore it in this music video, Violet the Organ Grinder, which is my all-time favorite music video, Prince. So if if you need something else to watch, please watch that. And, Viol- and his presentation in Viola the Organ Grinder is very much of the other. And it's like this kind of genderless sexual being that is just there to, to serve and to, you know, like promote sexual pleasure. And then um, with the release of the Love Symbol album the following year in 1992, he wears the chain hat again. But it's very different. It's a very different presentation. He's wearing it with black halter neck that um has a emblem like on it like the Minnesotan police 
Um, and again, the high weight, he's wearing all black with black biker gloves with the symbol on them. So it's, it's very, you know, like black and gold and a mixture of metals and leather and these um, stretched fabrics. And My Name is Prince, the music video is incredibly, it's like a really powerful statement because it's Prince, again, reclaiming who he is. And the music video is, is kind of, to me anyway, is loosely based on what was going on with the LA riots. And a lot, some of it was filmed in LA as well. And Prince is this kind of masked vigilante that, um, with the help of the new power generation, the band, the band that he was with at the time, um, is kind of taking back the city and reclaiming both himself but also the community, which is incredibly powerful. Um, Prince changed his name um, to, to the symbol. He was having ongoing issues with. When Prince signed with Warner Brothers, you know, like it was it was back in the 70s and then he went on this meteoric kind of rise to fame and he almost kind of like, he didn't come out of nowhere, but, you know, like to middleman America, he kind of just burst and imploded in this purple rain success. It, Prince was an artist and it was all about the creative process to him. Prince was a complete workhorse and he produced so much whether it be music, um, videos, films, um, side projects, shops, garments, like collaborations, candle, like he was just a complete workhorse. And I think the relationship that he had with Warner Brothers was stifling him by the time the early 90s came along because he was wanting to do things like release, like, you know, like double, triple albums, you know, like less than a year in between each other. Um, and they were trying to kind of hold hold the reins back a little bit. And I think the chain hat became something, it, it became a view because he did, he wore it for a period of, of, of a few years. And after that, he started wearing like masks, not masks, almost like a, a scarf over his face as well that had the symbol across it. And he wore, you know, like really wide brimmed hats as well because I think to Prince, he felt that he didn't have any claim to Prince as his name. Um, and he felt like he didn't have any claim to who he was. And, and that intrinsically is the music, the art that he creates. So by using the chain mask and, and things like the hats and the scarves and these veils over his face, he was, he was basically a very literal statement of, you know, like, you can't have all of me. Like mm-hmm. I'm still, I'm in this relationship with you. I'm in this contractual relationship with you. So I'm, I'm ticking the boxes to get where I need to be and then take it from there. But yeah, the chain hat is, it's something that is still again, really, really well known. And I think like from a performance point of view as well, he also wore it to Act One and Act Two tours um, in the, the, the mid-90s and he got his partner, Mighty, to come on stage and perform the My Name is Prince song dressed as Prince. So everybody, like, had, like for the entire song, everybody was like, oh, this is Prince. And she was lip syncing. And then at the end, she takes the mask off and she's she's Mighty. Um, so there's this whole kind of, you know, like, level of masquerade. And I think there's a bit of... Um, golf and Batman in there as well this kind of you know, like masked vigilante <laughs> trying to trying to reclaim what is his you know like ultimately his music his art um, and yeah I think Warner Brothers it just really soured and I think I think Prince really used clothing to get that message like sometimes it was it was very literal you know um, but that got the job done 
Yeah, absolutely. And just like, you know, the switch to the symbol, that partially had to do with him saying, like, you can't use my name to make money off me. I'm going to just completely change it to something else. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and at that time as well, like, it had to, like, the symbol had to be sent out in like a floppy disk um, because nobody could, it wasn't in your computer to, you know, like if you were writing an article about Prince's latest release. You had to have this floppy disk to enable to get the, the love symbol so that you could type it. Prince is really one of the kind of most, I mean, to me, probably the most well-known black artists that really took control of the music industry and, and went, you know what, this isn't working for me anymore. Um, he was one of the first artists to really champion like internet sales and internet fan clubs and and given the music to, to his fans, the people that got him to where it, where it would be, he, he knew that people wanted, you know, like all the triple, quadruple, massive albums. Um, and he really, I, I think just something as conventional as, you know, like a, a record deal with Warner Brothers, it just wasn't the right fit for somebody as innovative as Prince. Um, because like I say, like Prince was a workhorse and, he would finish one thing and then he would be dressing for the next era or the next two or three eras. Like he, he wasn't one to kind of stay in one spot. Speaking of like his signature style and not staying in one spot, a little bit later on in his career, his look kind of shifts away from this rigorous tailoring that we have come to expect from him. And he starts embracing some softer silhouettes. There's a lot of caftans that come into play. Do you have any thoughts on why he shifted his style at that later stage in his career? Yeah, so I think I think like there was an inclusion of caftans and tunics and long, like really beautiful caftan dresses that had the symbol and um, built into the garment with lovely, um, you know, like mesh cutaways and things that he he was wearing in the nineties, the, the later the later half of the nineties. I think in part it was to do with his kind of growing interest in spirituality and he he was interested in you know like um eastern dressing and he was really really inspired by that um I think as well it, I mean when Prince passed away he was wearing these garments mostly for comfort Prince had chronic pain issues so you know what it's like if you're in you know like a pencil skirt or you know like a tailored jacket it's not comfortable when you're not feeling your best and I think I think as he got older and he, you know, like mobility and, and ease of movement perhaps became an issue. I think things like the digitally printed um, tunics that he was wearing um, on the piano and microphone tour and the yoga pant, the stretch yoga pant that didn't have pockets and didn't have any, any kind of fastenings in them, um, which again is something that he wore in the 80s. It, it never, it, it was always there. I think these garments were a comfort to him but I think that they still got the job done in terms of you know like they were digitally printed with album artwork or he was becoming more interested in you know like kind of esoteric um, topic you know he was really interested in the moon and phases of the moon the waxing and the waning of the moon and and maybe slightly going away from his Jehovah's Witness I mean I can't speak for him but it does appear that way that he was kind of moving on from being a kind of devout Jehovah's Witness. 
And these garments, the whilst they were, you know, like they weren't as darted and, you know, like cinched as, as the suits that he wore, they still read really well on, on stage, particularly the piano and microphone tour. They had bell sleeves. They had, you know, like the colour where the lights would hit. So the, most of the design was at the tops of his garment. Um, and again, I think it was a lot of it was you know, like um, towards the end of his life, he was working with a Canadian brand called Call and Response, who I speak to in the book as well. And they're an incredible house that basically design garments with, with like, they're really inspired by music and musicians. So they have like that real rock and roll, like lots of distress worked into tooled leather, you know, like lovely buttery um, suede and things, just really gorgeous tactile fabrics. And I think when Prince was kind of coming towards the end of his life, again, I can't say for the man, but, you know, like it, it did feel like he was, you know, like having a bit of a, you know, like a bit of an eclipse in terms of he was going back to the, the 70s, the, the, the Jimi Hendrix, you know, like he, he grew out his, his hair, his natural hair, and he was having this more kind of, you know, like 70s rock god, hippie, bohemian vibe. Um, and I think that reflected maybe where he was at that part in, of his life. Mm-hmm. Well, and again, at that phase, it's almost returning back to that like materiality that was kind of like iconic and or, or not iconic, but instrumental in kind of like crafting his style early on in his career. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this (laughs) hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. 
So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I'm curious if you have any thoughts about what Princess Legacy is today as a sartorial disruptor, particularly within contemporary music. I think a lot of times when I speak to to like younger Prince fans, a lot of younger Prince fans are really excited when they discover Prince and they they maybe, you know, like they maybe find eras like the Dirty Minds album or the Love Sexy album and they discover this kind of non-conformist character. Um, a lot of the people that I speak to really, really kind of um, just feel a level of like freedom of being a Prince fan and and kind of encouragement through being a Prince fan to experiment with clothing, particularly gendered clothing. We do have, you know, like a wider representation of black masculinity now, but it's still not anywhere that it needs to be. Um, And sometimes, you know, like Prince's presentation and Prince's style can still, it is still quite shocking to some people. But I do think that, you know, like with musicians like Frank Ocean and Little Nas and you know, like these these musicians that are, um, you know, like diversifying what music and, and, and how we're seeing representations of a pop star. I think Prince has, has had like a kind of huge influence on that. And also like kind of wider as well of like community and building that community and, you know, like working with, with artists or designers that are local or champion younger designers or like building your own variation of Paisley Park, like Janelle Monet has her Wonderland um, kind of community. And obviously Janelle was 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 Prince's friend and you know like he was like a mentor to her. I believe that that is what is left from from Prince. This idea of of complete sartorial freedom and expression and and just like joy and dressing. I think that idea of creating your own artistic life is something that you see today you know like I, I know like you know like Gaga has her like House of Gaga and, and all that type of stuff and I think there's shades of Prince everywhere and I think for me it's it's just that kind of um like joy of dress and joy of like do you know like just being unashamedly glamorous um <laughs> I just like I just find such joy in that and when I watch Prince and performances I just always I always come away feeling you know like just so encouraged and so inspired to just be like unapologetically fabulous I know that sounds that's it but just like you know like um because we didn't mention this as well but Prince was Prince 24 hours a day this wasn't stage costume for him he probably wasn't wearing the butt out trousers to the record store but you know like this wasn't every day conviction to to look incredible and to dress fabulous 
He wore his heels, his makeup, he did his own makeup, his hair was done every day. He was always on point. He was always Prince. And you don't get many people like that nowadays. You don't get that level of commitment. A hundred percent. And it's I do, you know, like I, I always think of Prince almost like uh, you know, like a little kind of style cartoon. You know, like when you think of people like John Waters that have you know, like he always has his, you know, like his Comme des Garçons suit and his, his drawn on moustache um, or people like, you know, like Dita Von Tees or, or, or these people that have this kind of um, curated wardrobe that always just follows them throughout their, their careers and their life. And Prince had so many of these. But like I say, there's always that kind of um, linear line that you can connect the dots and you can see where he's coming from. Um, and it was just really natural. It was it was a natural expression. Yeah, it's a gift. Speaking of gifts, your book is amazing. I enjoyed it so much. For our listeners who might want to buy a copy, where can they find it? And also, you created these adorable Prince paper dolls that accompany the book as illustrations, and you've actually made them downloadable to people. So will you tell us a little bit more about this? Yes, um, thank you so much. The book is available. So if, if you're from the US, you can get the book directly from the publisher, which is 404 Inc. Um, but you can also get it on websites like Amazon, Book Depository. And if you're UK based, you can get it from Waterstones, Boils, etc. I'm sure you'll find it somewhere. Um, I have to thank my friend Sam, who encouraged me to do my little Prince paper dolls. <laughs> <laughs> because she was adamant that I had to include them in the book and I'm really glad that I did them. Um, if you go on the 404 Inc. website um, and you type in the name of my book on His Royal Badness, um, they'll pop up and they're a PDF and you can print them out black and white. And to be honest, everybody wants to colour in and dress up prints. So if you do do it, please tag me or let me see them because I love seeing uh, people people's creations. Um, it's just a really fun thing to do. It's a joy. <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of people that are about to reach for their purple crayon or their purple colored pencil right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cassie, this has been such a great conversation and I loved learning more about Prince. I've been a big Prince fan since I was a kid, even though my parents did not let me listen to him. Um, so that, that was, that was always on the DL on my end, but, um, yeah. but uh, I love learning more about his style from your book. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Cassie, this has been so wonderful. What a fun exploration into Prince's legacy. And I think a lot of our listeners will have a newfound appreciation of the effort and creativity behind the man, the myth, and the legend. I know I certainly do. And I had such a good time going back and watching a lot of the videos that Cassie references in the book. And actually, I had never seen the movie Under the Cherry Moon before, which I highly, highly recommend watching. It might not be exactly what you expect at first. Um, the whole thing is in black and white, and the premise of it flirts with a lot of Hollywood film history. So I loved it. I, it's definitely one of my favorite Prince films now, or, or it probably is my favorite Prince film now. So check it out if you haven't. Yeah, I mean, I love Purple Rain just because of the costumes. I mean, honestly, it's just so fun to watch, but I've never seen Under the Cherry Moon, so I'll have to check that out too. But dress listeners, that does it for us today and this week. 
May you consider adding a little purple or a lot of purple into your wardrobe next time you get dressed. You can find Cassie's book on his royal badness, the life and legacy of Prince's fashion at 404inc.com. And we'll, of course, be posting images of some of Prince's most iconic looks on our Instagram this week at dressed underscore podcast, where if you want to DM us, you can, or you can email us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. And if you have a chance to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we do so appreciate it. Also appreciated are our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. Dress, the History of Fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.